speaking of suppressing speech uh, um, and wondering why the uh, social media might suppress speech, this is just an astonishing ruling by the EU's uh, Advocate General uh, uh, in which a, um, a random Facebook user called a, the, a Green Party spokesman an oaf, a corrupt oaf uh, who belongs to a fascist party, the Green Party. Uh, and just to prove that, by God, there's nothing fascist about them, they uh, demanded that uh, Facebook remove that remark worldwide. I, you know, uh, if you ever wondered what uh, continent uh, fascism was invented on, uh, you don't need to wonder anymore. Welcome to episode 267 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. In in our standard disclaimer, there is really nobody who views, agrees with the views that are going to be expressed here. Certainly not our institutions, firms, clients, uh, or relatives. Uh, um, and uh, I can't really speak for us three weeks from today. Uh, I'm joined today uh, by Gary Goldschall, uh, who's a partner in our financial services practice and formerly was at the SEC's Trading and Markets Division by Matthew Hyman, uh, who is a senior fellow at the National Security Institute and formerly with Justice Department's uh, National Security Division by Nate Jones, who was also with the National uh, uh, with the Justice Department and the National Security Council and now a co-founder of Culper Partners and uh, one of the uh, uh, principals in a uh, Culper Partners podcast uh, uh, interviewing uh, uh, former Obama officials mainly uh, and a few uh, former Bush officials on the rule of law. Nate, welcome. And uh, I listened to your last one with John Bellinger. It was pretty good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for that. And uh, we're also joined by Gus Hurwitz, uh, law professor at the University of Nebraska and uh, uh, also with the International Center for Law and Economics there. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA DHS and the host provocateur of today's program. We got a lot to talk about today, uh, uh, so this will be a long, I fear, uh, uh, discussion. Uh, I want to jump in um, uh, for something that I give Gus credit for flagging. which is just how much the zeitgeist has turned on tech companies, particularly with respect to antitrust. Uh, um, and as I, I put it in the tweet, uh, the long, cold University of Chicago winter uh, in antitrust for antitrust plaintiffs is beginning to warm up, uh, and it's warming up mainly in Silicon Valley. Uh, um, uh, Gus, why don't you introduce what you think is happening here, how, what, what kinds of stories um, we're, uh, we're going to start to see, and then we'll uh, it'll ask Matthew uh, and uh, you to talk about what antitrust theories might turn out to be, to have legs in this area. Yes, yeah, so uh, I'll actually jump straight to the end and say none. Uh, uh, rumors of Chicago's warming uh, are grossly overstated, but uh, we'll, we'll come back to that and uh, get to watch it playing out over the next uh, three to ten years. Uh, and certainly these issues are going to be pretty big, uh, or at least there's a chance they'll be pretty big in the upcoming presidential election. Um, but uh, tech is hot in the sense that uh, it is hot to uh, rag on tech right now. Uh, 
Um, so we've been seeing just attacks coming from all over the place. And really, this is driven by uh, the growth of uh, uh, the tech sector in the United States, concerns about uh, uh, privacy, data aggregation. Um, there's a really fascinating, and we're seeing this globally, uh, pushback uh, within the media and institutional press against uh, the big tech companies that are uh, uh, coming for uh, their dinner. Uh, that is the advertising dollars that Google um, and uh, Facebook have been uh, uh, eating up used to be the advertising dollars that uh, uh, supported most of the press around the world. Um, and there's some really interesting, I think, uh, it's too, too harsh to call them conflicts of interests, though that's what they are. But a lot of the institutional media is too close to this story, I think, to fairly uh, cover a lot of uh, how the tech sector is uh, uh, shaping uh, the uh, financing of media around the world right now. But uh, turning to some of the stuff I, in the it, news. It, turn, it turns out, I, I should say, that... Uh, in reaction to that, journalists have managed to get the, the, the hashtag learn to code when applied to journalists who've lost their job translated as hate speech and it banned from, I think, uh, Twitter, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I forget the full details of that story, but uh, yeah, that, that was a one of the many uh, big hullabaloo's um, recently, and uh, I, I need to stay laser beam focused here. I can't go off and talk about the absurd uh, antitrust probe ongoing in uh, Australia, where uh, the antitrust authority was charged to look at how uh, the tech sector has been disrupting the media sector. From an American perspective, just to confirm of First Amendment and competition and antitrust issues there. It's amazing. But uh, headlines uh, to focus on here. Uh, the first one in the United States, uh, there's been this big discussion uh, that the DOJ and FTC have been divvying up uh, enforcement uh, and investigations in the tech sector. And this is a classic example of the media not understanding the legal and institutional dynamics and turning it into a story. Um, DOJ and FTC have a very curious overlapping jurisdiction in most areas of antitrust. There are some areas where only one or the other uh, are, have legal authority, but in many, including the tech sector, they have overlapping authority. So they have this clearance process that they go through when both companies, uh, both agencies could investigate one company. They'll go through an internal negotiation to figure out who gets that uh, company to investigate. Well, Gus, to be fair to the press here, um, they wouldn't be negotiating over who gets to investigate these guys if they weren't thinking about investigating them. Uh, uh, and so, you know, this is a straw in the wind that investigations are coming, isn't it? Yes and no. So uh, my read on this, and uh, of course, this is all internal DOJ, FTC dynamics. Maybe there is something bigger here. But the FTC announced a couple of months ago the formation of their technology task force. So they said, hey, we're going to be investigating the tech sector. Well, you can just queue up. You can hear the DOJ responding to that saying, oh, wait a second. We also have authority here. So internal negotiations over who's going to get what after the FTC announces, hey, we're investigating everyone. It's the obvious result. Um, the agencies have to go through this clearance process. The other thing that obviously was influencing them is the uh, it, it kind of remarkably, the Justice Department so dislikes an FTC um, ruling with respect to Qualcomm that they 
intervened in the litigation to uphold the uh, uh, or strike down one of the two, uh, the FTC's order to say, hey, wait a minute, there ought to be a hearing on remedy because we're really worried about what kind of remedy might come out of this. Uh, so they obviously feel a certain disparate uh, uh, impact from uh, FTC versus Justice Department uh, jurisdiction, right? It gets even more complicated. So the, the Qualcomm opinion, uh, this is a Ninth Circuit Judge Coe um, uh, decision in longstanding uh, patent antitrust litigation. Um, the FTC arguably doesn't like that opinion either. Um, well, not the current uh, FTC. Yeah, they, right, at least one commissioner. <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, an FTC commissioner I, I sort of lobbying to get an FTC uh, ruling overturned on appeal. Uh, so, yes, yeah, it was pretty and, controversial. Well, and, even the so even the current FTC, along with the DOJ, they wanted the uh, judge to come back to them if the ruling went the way that it did to talk about remedies, and the judge just implemented remedies on her own. Um, and uh, I, I should do some quick hits here. So uh, the Qualcomm opinion is, I'll, in my personal view, terrible. It is, in my personal view, going to be overturned because it is a dramatic extension of a legal doctrine known as Aspen skiing, which uh, when Aspen skiing was decided uh, by the Supreme Court, it was said to be at the outer limits of antitrust, and she extended it beyond those outer limits. Uh, can I slow you down just a second there uh, on that? I, I, to ride a little hobby horse of my own, the FTC decision is a blow at the principal uh, U.S. company shaping standards for 5G. There's obviously international uh, and national security implications to saying uh, we're going to uh, dramatically reduce their revenue. And all of the companies or many of the companies that, that – filed amici um, were Chinese companies that are consumers of Qualcomm chips who wanted to pay less and have fewer uh, restrictions and to be able to develop their own chips, all things with national security implications, implications that the FTC has no jurisdiction whatsoever to consider, and probably the FTC needs some legislative guidance telling them, from now on, when you do privacy cases, when you do antitrust cases, you need to take some national security advice from the executive branch. National security uh, is obviously a hugely important in this area, but it's worth noting this case predates most of the current uh, 5G national security uh, discussion. Um, so it was framed and is primarily uh, uh, being litigated in uh, antitrust uh, standard essential patents, uh, standard setting organization terms. So massively complicated litigation. But for the purposes of this discussion, talking about what's going on with uh, uh, big tech and antitrust. It's a major ruling that extends uh, longstanding antitrust doctrine in a very uh, arguably anti-big tech way, um, making it much easier for antitrust law to be used to regulate big tech platforms. Um, in the EU, there's a lot of discussion that the former uh, European czar of competition uh, might become the new uh, 
uh, commission president, uh, Margaret uh, Vessager, um, and she made her name in the European Union by going after American tech firms, uh, was one of the big forces as well behind uh, GDPR, a topic we uh, love dearly uh, in these parts. In the last week's news, uh, uh, the House is getting ready to do a major investigation on the big tech companies, and state AGs are getting ready to do their own big investigation. So uh, to uh, uh, mix some metaphors, perhaps, uh, you started, Stuart, by suggesting that uh, Chicago's uh, long winter of antitrust is starting to thaw. Um, Now, of course, that's a reference to Chicago being cold and we Chicago folks liking our winters. Um, It seems uh, could be a winter is coming scenario for uh, antitrust law and big tech. The question is, is that a Game of Thrones reference or a preserving Chicago dominance uh, reference? Only uh, time will tell. So, Matthew, uh, uh, what's your thinking about uh, where all this antitrust ferment is going to go? Well, I think it's going to play out more politically almost than legally, because if Donald Trump does not get reelected to a second term and uh, whether it's President Warren or President Biden, um, I think the uh, the bad times for big tech only get worse because any sort of restraints that Republican policymakers generally think about when it comes to concerns about the marketplace are out the window. And I think... Uh, so I think this is it had the results of all the legal stuff won't manifest themselves to well into a second Trump term or a first a D term. And so I think the po- the political issue will uh, come to the fore much faster than whatever the results of this litigation and House investigation. Yeah, I for sure. This has become a big Democrat issue, uh, it, which is weird because Silicon Valley is not just. Democrat in their giving, but enthusiastically censoring uh, the right uh, and determined that never again will social media be used by somebody like Donald Trump. Um, and so the idea of punishing them, I guess they're punishing them for letting uh, Donald Trump pass the uh, the goaltender. Right? Um, but it raises the question whether conservatives who think they are being censored by Silicon Valley should be getting on the antitrust uh, bandwagon and saying, you know, since Chicago is all about is there harm to consumers, uh, maybe we ought to look at that harm to consumers from uh, sources other than hurting their pocketbook. These services are free. And so uh, when uh, Facebook or uh, Google, uh, YouTube uh, says, uh, yeah, this is free for people who agree with us, but not for people who disagree with us. Uh, a, are they just sort of taking out a kind of consumer benefit uh, in a way that the antitrust laws ought to recognize? And I, I think that's plausible. Well, I, I think it's a dangerous game to weaponize antitrust in this way, to start using it for any and all purposes, any and all ills that you perceive in society, because I think you wind up trying to put the wrong foot in the wrong shoe. And I think if uh, Republicans and if the public in general believes that the tech companies are truly biased against one side or the other, there are a lot of other policymaking tools out there far more efficient and effective than antitrust, which generally manifests its results 10 years after the litigation's begun and is generally regulating something that has already been 
made obsolete by the march of technology. Okay, fair, fair. I, I understand that argument, uh, uh, but then wouldn't if you think the answer to uh, suppression of speech is that the forty percent of America that uh, actually wants to see this and hear this speech um, uh, needs a different competing platform. Won't antitrust make it more likely they'll get an, a competing platform than the current situation where the competing platforms get bought up and then the same ideological screen applied? Yeah, perhaps. But I think there are other things you could do legislatively, as we've seen and, and we've seen it from the Supreme Court over the years when they think about what are public spaces for First Amendment purposes. Right. So we remember those cases from law school where they would talk about the Hare Krishnas at the shopping center. And how much authority does the shopping center owner have to ban all activity? And so I think there are other tweaks around the system, whether you're talking about Section 230, the Communications Act, or other places where you could, if you want to sort of put your thumb on the scale to achieve some Euclidean balance again, you could do that without using what I think is the wrong tool, which is antitrust. Okay. I, uh, I, I'm in the minority here. Right? Uh, all right. Um so, uh, speaking of suppressing speech uh, um, and wondering why the uh, social media might suppress speech, this is just an astonishing ruling by the EU's uh, Advocate General, uh, uh, in which a um, a random Facebook user called a, the a Green Party spokesman an oaf, a corrupt oaf uh, who belongs to a fascist party, the Green Party. Uh, and just to prove that, by God, there's nothing fascist about them, they uh, demanded that uh, Facebook remove that remark worldwide. I, you know, uh, if you ever wondered what uh, continent uh, fascism was invented on, uh, you don't need to wonder anymore. And the European Union's advocate general, who's like the solicitor general, but with more clout, uh, ad has advised the European Court of Justice that, uh, yeah, sure, that's that, that's OK. You know, you might want to think a little bit about comedy, but what the hell? You know, if it's really important and it's uh, it's individual rights, uh, like, you know, the right not to be called a crypto-fascist when you're in the middle of uh, um, uh, suppressing speech, uh, then fine. Um, so we'll we'll look for a decision out of the uh, uh, Court of Justice sometime in the next six months, but uh, uh, this is a straw in the wind and not a good one. All right, Nate, um, while we're talking about foreigners who are uh, trying to decide what we can say and do and how we vote, uh, there was a really interesting semantic report uh, that raises the question, were the Russians better at influencing our election than we originally thought? Uh, what do you think? I, I think this is one area where you may get some consensus between Trump folks and, and anti-Trump folks. And, and I think the answer they both would give is no. You know, I think the denialists on Trump's side will continue to argue that uh, – the, the social media aspect of the Russian influence campaign wasn't very effective and, and um, you know, they're still in denial about its, its intent. And I think, you know, a lot of close observers on the other side who have read previous studies have, have often noted that they were based on a limited factual set that really constrained their ability to assess the full impact or weight of this campaign. 
And I think that, you know, with each successive look at this, it's been a one-way ratchet. So the fact that Symantec found that this had broader reach, that uh, that the the organic nature of, of sharing these things on, on social media spread it further than previously proven uh, is, is not at all surprising. But I, I do think that, you know, if you look back at the, the Mueller press uh, availability a, a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that he stressed is that, you know, we still have not come to grips with the impact of the Russian influence campaign on the 2016 election. Since since that campaign, you know, we've been focusing on a handful of questions. Some of them are being answered, I think, by the facts, you know, questions like how far did it reach? What was the Russians intent? The things where we are stuck are um, how effective was it? And that is still a matter of dispute, um, although I think of shrinking dispute. Um, and then there's the obvious question of what do we do about it? And, you know, um, in the counterterrorism context, for example, 9-11 was sort of a galvanizing moment that brought the country together and recognizing that there was a need to to marshal all of our resources to combat the threat we were facing. And a lot of people, I think, expected or at least thought that the, the 2016 election and Russia's role in it should, um, should have been that galvanizing moment for cybersecurity and democracy. All of the uh, social media companies are ganging up on what they call inauthentic uh, um, uh, posts, uh, which is or activity, which is basically in the, in, Facebook takes the lead in this, but uh, basically fake accounts that are used to um, as an adjuvant uh, for uh, uh, dumb stuff that uh, uh, is propaganda from another country. Uh, and you, you can use it. For any purpose, you you have a bunch of follower accounts whose principal role is to retweet stuff so it gets higher up in the list and people are more likely to see it. The Russians were more creative in setting up these things as early as 2014 and then uh, – and in – Picking both sides of the fight uh, so that they could uh, be yelling at each other as well as goosing their own uh, uh, numbers. Um, but I, I do kind of I think the social media companies are doing their best to locate fake accounts yes. and take them down. What's really For sure. what, what, what bothers right. me, if I can just um, yeah, yeah. Uh, ride another hobby horse, I, I think this will be the last one. We've done nothing about what's what's clearly the more effective tactics, which is breaking into the DNC uh, and DCC um, uh, email servers and publishing all their email. That really had a demonstrable effect in part because it was uh, not fake at all. It was true. Uh, And uh, the harm that was done to the DNC leadership uh, and to the Clinton campaign is uh, demonstrable. Um, And we've done nothing zip zero about that and the number of ideas for that i think are pretty modest but i will say i had a, a, an idea that i published on lawfare which i will let uh, first amendment scholars reprove me for in which i said you know when you read the cases about whether you can prevent the release of stolen information um the supreme court has been very cautious and very open to the idea that, yes, in in an effort to protect privacy and private speech, you can prevent 
a public speech about true facts, where the facts uh, come from stolen data. Uh, I I propose that we could actually have a, a, a law that says – you know, if foreign governments break in and steal stuff, uh, uh, the victim of that can sue anybody who republishes it uh, unless it is a demonstrable and limited story dealing with a, a matter of public concern, um, uh, which is much more limited than just putting them on Wikipedia. Uh, so this is my proposal to give the same protection to the DNC that Beyonce gets every time she releases an album. Nate, uh, you're, you're, I, I suspect you're on the other side of the First Amendment and also on the other side of um, uh, Russian hacking uh, uh, stuff. So let me treat you as the guinea pig. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I would add another way in which I think we're better positioned. I think your your overall point is is a good one, and that is, you know, I think that a, a growing portion of the population is more skeptical of what they're seeing on social media and online, which I think has us better positioned than we were in 2016. But where we, I think, even in the, your post, you know, we are are behind, is you know the willingness of government actors and policymakers in this country to take any actions, and and your proposal would require that. And I think gaining um, bipartisan support and getting it to move through Congress will be difficult in this environment where it's it's still caught up in in the politics of the day. Now, I I do think that you're you're right that given you know. Uh, the case law on the topic. There is some possible room in there for um, this kind of regulation of the dissemination of this kind of content under the First Amendment. The key questions, I think, are not only what does the law actually allow, but also how do you effectuate that? And I think that that is going to be um, a real challenge for your proposal. You know, if it's if it's limited to, for example, you know, um, information that's unlawfully harvested by by foreign governments and spread online, you know, there are still people in this country who dispute whether that is what took place under the, the DNC context. I mean, I think the facts are, are pretty clear that that is what happened, but it takes both time and, and a level of proof to demonstrate that you're within this kind of safe zone that you're talking about um, to prevent its publication and dissemination. And, and that will be where I think... Um, the, the most difficult aspects of implementing this kind of thing. I agree that implementation is going to be hard, but there are a lot of choices there. You could say, oh, fine, it's a, it's a defense that it wasn't a government that did it. You want to argue about that? Uh, you want to take the risk of the liability and, and uh, pull that defense out? Uh, go right ahead. Uh, so there's ways to deal with it. Uh, um, but I'm struck by the fact that uh, I, I put this on uh, of the Volokh uh, conspiracy, which gets a lot of uh, uh, conservative readers, mainly libertarians. And, you know, you would have thought I said, uh, you know, I voted for Hillary and I, I, I she's the only legitimate president we have. I, everybody just said, oh, God, you know, this is just, uh, uh, you know, uh, you lost this election. Can I give it up? Uh, it was sort of surprising how uh, uh, even a proposal like this, this is a, that's aimed at uh, foreign government hacking uh, has become something in which uh, in an oddly mirroring of if, if Hillary was more worried about Republicans getting access to her email than about the Russians, which is probably why she set up the system she set up. Uh, now uh, uh, the Republicans are more worried about uh, how this might vindicate uh, uh, arguments about the 2016 election than about uh, the Russians interfering with it. Like 
corporations, the Russian government is a person too, right? Um, <laughs> and so maybe they have free speech rights in this country. But I think, um, I, I mean, I guess my bottom line is I think these are exactly the kinds of things that we should be talking about and figuring out and, and trying to address. Um, otherwise, you know, this is just going to continue to recur going forward and we're going to be kicking ourselves. So speaking of, of people who have made us question the First Amendment, uh, the New York Times article about Baltimore is looking uh, and, and the extent to which NSA played a role in its ransomware was is looking sadder and sadder. Right? Um, uh, Matthew, I, there's been a little bit of development uh, uh, just in the last day or so, but it appears that NSA is persuasively saying uh, Eternal Blue had nothing to do with the Baltimore ransomware problem uh, uh, and, um, uh, and and the failure to patch for two years probably had something more to do with it. Uh, and uh, New York Times has doubled down and said, no, we think that this that our story was right, but I'm not seeing much there. No, um, obviously the NSA is saying Eternal Blue, which was the exploit code, they said it had nothing to do with it. Uh, we've now got stories about independent cyber security consultants digging around, looking into it, uh, saying, no, we don't see any eternal blue. This is pretty standard ransomware code, and there's nothing eternal bluish about it. It may have been used to propagate it, but even that's unlikely. Yeah, so the, I, I think Baltimore's defense now is we are so incompetent and so open to, to hacking that there were two, three more people who'd hacked our system were wandering around, and some of them used Eternal Blue, but probably not the ransomware guys. No, probably not. And I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know if Baltimore's politicians were hoping this was the handiwork of sloppy NSA folks that let this well, dog out the of the down cage. The, down the parkway. But I just don't think that's the case. I think what you've got is, like, with a lot of large organizations, you've got... Uh, uh, systems that are distributed, you've got multiple entry points, and you've got a lack of vigilance around updating software, patching code, and training people about how to avoid spear phishing. And, and as a result, Baltimore's got many, many computers that are still locked up and being held for ransom. So there was a story also uh, this week about um, uh, the people who are attacking banks, and they seem to be doing what some of the guys that are in the Baltimore system were doing, which is really yeah. putting the P in APT. When they yeah. talk about persistent threats, they are going in and just owning these uh, these banks before they try to take a dime. Absolutely, and they're playing the long game. So uh, the article makes a big point saying, well, you know, these hacks aren't like Hollywood movies, and of course they're not because Hollywood movies need to have time for, you know, car chases and love scenes between the male lead and the female lead. And, and about 15 seconds of hacking is all you really want to see. Exactly. When you see the guy sitting behind the terminal saying, we're in. You know, and, and, then, and then everything happens from there. Uh, it's just not the way it works. It goes on for months. They they do a full mapping of the entire terrain in which they're operating. They know they probably know the system as well as the IT team that's charged with. I, I love the guarding part where the they, were, they were downloading the PDFs of the standard procedures. Right. Uh, that's you know that is somebody who's really thinking it through. Very thorough. Um, and, and and then and only when they really understand how everything works. Do they launch their thievery of money or whatever it may be? Because obviously, not only do they want to steal the money, they want to be able to be in the system for as long as possible, slowly stealing the money. Uh, and so I, I think it's just a reminder that 
you know, these these things are not instantaneous. And, and also when you look at the stories, and I know we're going to come on to the Quest Diagnostics yeah. Lab Course story, we find out that that had been going on for six months, according to the 8K. Um, so they, it, they, it looks as though LabCorp was compromised because a third party, the right. billing, the collection the agency, collection agency. Uh, was compromised. And whoever co- compromised the collection agency was smart enough to say, you know, I could cl- compromise these guys, but why don't I compromise the folks who are relying on them to do medical collections? Exactly. Exactly. And so according to the AK, it goes on for months and months and months before they trip across it. And it's just to remind. And again, how did they get into the collection agency? Uh, Email spear phishing tactics, which that's the name of the game. You get someone and they click on something and then they're in. And so this technique is as old as hacking, it seems. And and so the technique isn't exactly sophisticated, but it's tried and true. It works. Yeah, it does, and uh, um, it's worth uh, worth a reminder because uh, as people make their systems harder to penetrate, uh, the folks that they rely on for one connection or another is going to be uh, increasingly the way folks get in. Uh, I'm waiting to hear from the medical collection guys that uh, those really obnoxious calls about the $4 I owe to my uh, orthopedist uh, uh, well, was the hackers. It wasn't them. Gary, you've been very patient, uh, but I, I did want to uh, talk about this uh, uh, because it's a pretty important tech issue. Uh, the SEC is suing Kick over Kick's cryptocurrency, and Kick is uh, crowdsourcing the funding to fight back. Uh, uh, why is the SEC suing Kick? Sure. Well, the SEC's uh, case against Kick concerns a token that it issued in, in 2017 called Kin. Uh, that was to be used on its um, its messaging platform. So, Stuart, I think you really get one of the real interesting parts of this case, which is the idea that that the defense is going to crowdsource its legal uh, legal fees. They've already um, they've set out to raise five million dollars, and uh, as of um, a quick look earlier this morning, they're within ten percent of that. Uh, of that figure. Well, I have to say, this is the most promising uh, uh, new development in technology in years, speaking, <laughs> speaking as the council, uh, although $5 million seems a little low. Well, um, so their whole approach around this sort of uh, defend crypto, I think, has been going on for, for many, many months. So the campaign formally started about a week before the SEC brought its case. Uh, so Kick probably had an inkling this was coming. Um, but it had really started this process late last year, early this year when it released publicly its Wells submission that it provided to the SEC. And for those who are not familiar, uh, a Wells notice is um, um, something that the SEC provides uh, defendants asking them to show good reason why they should not recommend the case be brought um, against them. And so, you know, the very unorthodox step of releasing a Wells notice and, and those who follow this space were were very surprised to see this happen looking at it today. It's, which which is, it was a signal they were going to try this case in the papers. Y- yeah, I guess. Yeah, you didn't realize to what extent they would be doing this, but that's exactly right. You know, and public sentiment um, really started to get behind kick in this case. Um, before the SEC filed this complaint, many thought this was really the case to go down on. This is this is the, the, the fundamental question here is when is a coin offering a securities offering, uh, as I take it. And, and um, Kick says what they did isn't a, a, a securities offering and the SEC says, yes, it is. Um, there's a test for that. Uh, yeah, the Howey test. Yes. Right. Exactly. It's a Supreme Court case um, that defines the, the four elements of what constitutes an investment contract. 
and and thus a security. So, you know, if, if I may for a second, mm-hmm. one of the things that are very interesting in this, so, you know, kick for many months laid out its presentation of the facts. And if you look at the SEC's complaint in the Wells response, you see not only a difference of the law, but you see a very different presentation of the facts. And so if I could just maybe highlight yep. for a few moments some of the things. So kick emphasized that it was offering a currency and described its token kin as a medium of exchange. The SEC really emphasized the fact that kick spoke of the, the profit potential associated with the kin token. So kick also offered that this was to, meant to unlock new user experiences in the platform and emphasized its long established business history and its existing functionality. Now what the SEC did, because it has discovery, is it revealed some internal board level discussions that viewed this offering as a Hail Mary and capital raising endeavor for a company that was due to run out of money um, in the fall of 2017. A, a classic pivot, right? Uh, yes, exactly right. Um, you know, in terms of Kick's emphasis that the uh, DAP developers could earn rewards, um, that was Kick's point. SEC talked about Kick's role in growing the platform. And finally, you know, throughout its Wells response, uh, Kick referred to its um, the, the uh, distribution or the public sale as a token distribution event, yet all of its internal emails and public statements referred to it as an ICO or something more akin to venture capital investing. So. Okay. Kind of fun to sort of see each side lay out their version of the facts. Do you think this is going to decide how 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 he applies to most ICOs, or is there something about this that's going to send it off into a, a rabbit hole of its own? Yeah, I'm really bad at trying to predict those types of things. I do think we what it does indicate to me um, or suggest is the area where I think this case is going to be litigated on, which is the prong of the Howey test that deals with whether or not there's a common enterprise is one that's relatively underdeveloped in the SEC's guidance mm-hmm. and jurisprudence in the crypto area um, to date. So, um, early April, the SEC issued a framework where it gave, I think, rather comprehensive guidance and factors that do, to be considered whether or not something is um, relying on the efforts of others or whether or not there's an expectation of profit. The SEC spent about three lines of 14 pages on whether or not something is a common enterprise, which now leads me to believe that this is something that, that they expect to be litigated and didn't want to either reveal their thinking or say things that Kit could then use against them in, in the matter. OK, so I if nothing else. Plenty of popcorn will be sold with this one, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I may even do an initial popcorn offering uh, uh, <laughs> for this one. Okay, thanks, Gary. Uh, uh, thanks also to Matthew Hyman, to Nate Jones, to Gus Hurwitz for joining me. This has been episode 267 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, we've got people coming up, uh, interviews coming up, uh, delivering a compromised uh, um, interview with uh, Harvey Rishikoff and Joyce Carell on supply chain. Security, Rob Kanaki and Dick Clark will be talking about their new book, The Fifth Domain. Um, and we're trying to get Paul Shar and uh, Greg Allen from CNES on China, artificial intelligence and other tech issues. If you've got other uh, people to suggest, I've also asked uh, Glenn Reynolds of Instapundit, who has a little book out, uh, a short book out on uh, uh, social media uh, and uh, uh, speech expression, uh, which I'm hoping he'll come on the show to talk about. Uh, If you've got other suggestions, send them to me, uh, uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Send me notes on uh, Twitter. I've been pretty good about uh, taking the time to uh, preview some of the 
articles that we'll be discussing uh, at Stuart Baker if you want to follow those. Uh, and uh, most of all, go on iTunes or Spotify or uh, Google Play and leave us a five-star review. Uh, that's how we get found. And uh, we've been getting new uh, listeners, so you guys are doing your job. Uh, I'd appreciate it, though, if you like the show. That's the best way to uh, uh, reward us. I want to thank Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, who's the assistant editor and really has been the producer and audio engineer for a lot of this stuff. Uh, I am Stuart Baker, your host and chief provocateur. Please join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.